0: Hello, my name is Josh Hirsch. I'd like to thank Rob Tarr and the BMJ for allowing us to do this podcast on evidence-based clinical practice for the neurointerventionalist. This article appeared online first on March 6, 2014, and brought together many leading lights of neurointervention in terms of trial design and evidence-based practice. Neurointerventional is an interesting field in that it is so recent in its development. The possibilities of treatment are so far greater in their sophistication than they were just a few short decades ago. We've noted that at the beginning of the neurointerventional paradigm shift, cerebrovascular doctors were looking for innovative, minimally invasive solutions to complex problems in the cerebral vasculature, but often didn't have the tools to readily perform those interventions. Again, a few decades later, the power that we are able to harness with the technologic innovation, computer enhancements, device, sophistication, really makes treatment the art of the possible. As such, neurointervention has become a mainstay of cerebrovascular care. With the increasing predominance of neurointervention in the cerebrovascular patient care paradigm, comes the challenge of shifting from anecdotal care to evidence-based care. Often we found that as we look at trials designed to look at some of the different clinical issues we face as neurointerventionists, they've not necessarily brought ringing endorsements to the procedures that we think so helpful. Part of that process, part of the role of our Society of Neurointerventional Surgery are to provide clinical guidelines and technical standards for our members, payers, referring community, and others to judge the status of the evidence to guide us in our day to day practice. We are very fortunate today to be joined by two of those leading lights. Dr. Phil Myers is the current president of the SNINS. He spends every day thinking about how to advance the field of neurointervention. Before he was the president of SNIS, Phil started the effort at developing clinical guidelines and technical standards for our field. I should point out that he started doing that well before the JNIS even existed. He's brought so much to the field that his legacy will be filled with one accomplishment after another, but I think one of the standout accomplishments will be the founding of the Standard and Guidelines Committee. On a personal note, I'd also like to congratulate him on his recent promotion to professor at Columbia University. When Phil decided to transition off of the Standard and Guidelines Committee, there were many possible choices for the board on who would be the right person to succeed him, as this is one of our most important efforts at the society. Dr. Mahesh Jayaraman is a present and future leader of our society. He's a neurointerventionalist interventionalist at Brown University, and heads up our very robust standard and guidelines committee. It's fair to say that this activity has increased and been super active over the past year and with JNIS has a natural home. Gentlemen, I ask you to join me on this podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much, Josh. Thank you, Josh.
0: Well, why don't we start with uh, something very basic. And uh, maybe I can throw this to Mahesh. Mahesh, what is evidence-based medicine?
2: Sure, thanks, Josh. So, one of the nice definitions of evidence-based medicine is at the University of Oxford and their Center for Evidence-Based Medicine. And they define EDM as the conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of the current best evidence in making decisions about the care of individual patients. Now, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that rather than looking at a patient and treating them anecdotally or treating them in a certain manner either with or without a certain procedure or medicine because you've always done it that way or anecdotally as in the last patient I did this to had a terrible outcome so I shouldn't do this again, we try to use the best evidence that's available. At the same time, it's important to recognize that evidence-based medicine doesn't purely mean just going based on the literature alone and so you want to integrate the literature into the decision making but also know what a how your patient may or may not differ from a patient in one of those trials so for example uh, josh you had mentioned about in the article the ims3 trial and how on a broad scale adding endovascular reperfusion to intravenous TPA did not appear to improve outcomes. However, if you're faced with a patient in the emergency room and you know that based on vessel imaging that that patient has a proximal occlusion, you know that you're early in the time window, and perhaps that that patient's NIH stroke scale is 20 or higher, you could use the evidence from the trial but also look at some of the subgroup analyses from that trial and understand that This is a patient who may benefit from an endovascular procedure. So it's not just knowing the literature, but how to apply the literature to your individual patient.
0: Nash, that's a a really terrific and comprehensive answer. And uh, I think really sets the stage for thinking about the article on evidence-based clinical practice. How can this apply? The IMS3 example is really such a perfect one in thinking about, just the stuff we're doing from day to day. Phil, one of the things we hear about often in the same breath as evidence-based medicine is comparative effectiveness research. Are they the same things? Can you contrast them if they're different? What is it?
1: Uh, Thanks, Josh. They're they're certainly um, allied uh, uh, endeavors. And uh, Mahesh, I agree. I think you just gave a a terrific uh, summary of that. And many of these issues are uh, summarized in the uh, article that you chaired, Josh, uh, Evidence-Based Clinical Practice for the Neurointerventionalists, uh, a review recently uh, published in the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. Comparative effectiveness uh, research is allied to uh, evidence-based medical practice, and this is research designed to inform healthcare decisions by providing evidence on the effectiveness, benefits, and potential harms of different treatment options. In a general sense, the evidence is generated from research studies that compare drugs, medical devices, tests, various procedures we perform, or ways to deliver health care. And as I think both of you have mentioned, There are still many unanswered questions at almost every level of the types of procedures we perform. In other words, there are many opportunities for us to conduct comparative effectiveness research in the field of neurointervention. There are effectively two ways that this evidence is found. Number one, uh, neurointerventionalists who choose to do the research can look at all of the available evidence about the benefits and potential harms at each choice of different uh, uh, groups of people from existing clinical trials, clinical studies, and other research. And these are called research reviews because we're endeavoring endeavoring to perform a systematic review of the existing evidence. Uh, The other way that we can uh, generate uh, uh, research is that um, investigators can conduct studies that generate new evidence of effectiveness or comparative effectiveness of tests, treatments, procedures, or other types of healthcare services we perform. So, in In essence, the comparative effectiveness research requires the development, expansion, and use of a variety of data sources and methods to conduct timely and relevant research, and then subsequently to disseminate the results in a form that is quickly usable by our counterparts, uh, both nationally and internationally, uh, so that we can better treat uh, patients, address concerns of uh, policymakers, and uh, healthcare plans and other payers that we have to interact with. Uh, There are effectively seven steps that have been uh, outlined by AHRQ uh, in the process. Uh, First, uh, we need to identify new and emerging clinical interventions. And we effectively, as you say, are doing this almost uh, uh, daily, if not monthly. There are new types of ways that we are trying to uh, treat our patients and address their needs. Secondly, we need to review and synthesize uh, current medical research. Third, we need to identify the gaps between existing medical research and the needs of clinical practice. Fourth, we want to promote and generate new scientific evidence and analytic tools. uh, Fifth, we want to train and develop uh, clinical uh, researchers to then conduct the studies that are needed. And then sixth, translate and disseminate the research findings to our diverse group of stakeholders, and there are many, in industry, in government, and uh, insurance companies, uh, for example. Uh, seventh, we want to reach out to our stakeholders, and this is usually uh, conducted by a, some form of a citizen forum.
0: Phil, that's an incredibly comprehensive and excellent answer. Uh, there's There's little I can add to that except to say that with the Affordable Care Act, comparative effectiveness research in the United States was really taken to a new level. With the establishment of the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. The P.C.ORI, as it's known, is really in full swing and has tremendous opportunity to impact on neurointerventional care. Clearly, something that would be separate uh, from the main uh, stream uh, material we're going to talk about here in this podcast, but I have to say, incredibly important to the practicing neurointerventionalist. In Phil's answer, Uh, He talked about uh, a variety of stakeholders, Mahesh, and I wonder if you could educate us on how coverage decisions might be impacted by evidence-based medicine.
2: Sure, Josh. So, um, obviously, the United States healthcare system has multiple stakeholders. There are the insurance providers, there are the medical care providers, and there are the patients. And um, certainly, we're all moving towards trying to provide the best care at a reasonable cost. And so if you were an insurer, what you want to do is to have your patients be healthy. And sometimes that would mean having a procedure done by a neurointerventionist. And in some cases, the procedure may be unnecessary or add risk to the patient that may not benefit the population as a whole. And so I think it's very conceivable that moving forward, the insurance companies start to use the evidence that's out there to try and make coverage decisions. Fortunately, as of right now, we have not seen widespread denial, for example, of mechanical thrombectomy, um, especially since many of us feel that the currently available thrombectomy devices, again, using an example that was in the article, do not uh, represent what was used in the IMS3 trial. But certainly, we could see a scenario where if these are randomized trials, do not show a benefit for a certain type of procedure, an insurer could say, you know what, we're not gonna cover this procedure. I think another thing that dovetails into that is going to be the implementation of ICD-10. For right now, we don't have a way to, for example, if you have an unruptured cerebral aneurysm, there's one ICD-9 code for that. But a small unruptured extradural aneurysm is very different from a large intradural aneurysm. And so I think that as our ability to define the disease processes uh, expands with ICD-10 and as the level of evidence and the quality of the evidence um, grows, I think it's certainly conceivable that insurance providers are going to use what's out there in terms of the literature to base judgment uh, in terms of coverage decisions. I think what that means to us as the neurointerventionists and as the experts in delivering endovascular, cerebrovascular care, that we need to take charge and we need to be the ones driving the literature forward. I think that if we sit passively by, it's certainly possible that coverage decisions could come out that many of us would consider unfavorable. And so I think it behooves us to take an interest, understand the EDM and CER, what that means, the uh, steps that the AHRQ had outlined, it's also nicely summarized and how we can get involved in order to ensure that the insurance understand why we feel the procedures that we provide and the care that we provide to patients is so valuable.
0: Nash, that is just a phenomenal answer and indeed correct. I would uh, like to put a point on the fact that I do think that coverage decisions are already impacted by the perception of the state of the evidence and that's true uh, across really our space including invertebral augmentation, or as you mentioned, mechanical thrombectomy. Some of the dominant insurers, like Blue Cross Blue Shield, have
1: very deliberate and
0: clear policies as they relate to coverage for some of these uh, treatments. So I think the uh, effect of uh, evidence-based medicine or the perception of the evidence already affects certain coverage decisions that exist right now i think as you said that is certainly likely to grow into the future and if we want to empower ourselves to help the patients in the way we believe ought to occur through neuroendovascular care then we need to take primary responsibility for generating future studies uh, regarding these various treatments and modalities sticking with um, this theme though mahesh let me just ask a follow-up question and say we've talked about how evidence based medicine might impact on coverage decisions. Can you tell us the state of evidence-based medicine and neurointerventional
2: right now? The holy grail for evidence-based medicine is to have ideally multiple, multi-center, randomized controlled trials that uh, demonstrate the efficacy of a certain procedure or treatment with respect to improving patient outcomes. Unfortunately, as a sort of burgeoning field, maybe we're a field entering adolescence, we don't have the depth and the breadth of these randomized trials that exist in some of the other endovascular fields, for example, in cardiology. And so I think that we are sort of at our infancy in terms of randomized controlled trials. Certainly, we have been affected by several that have come out recently IMS3, we talked about, we also talked um, about the vertebral augmentation trials. But if we compare the number of patients that were in these trials to the numbers that are in the cardiology trials, we're dwarfed by what our colleagues in cardiology are able to do. Um, the next step below having multiple randomized trials would be perhaps a single randomized trial. And um, again, using another recent example, the Aruba trial, which is a randomized trial of observation versus interventional therapy, whether it be endovascular, surgical, or radiosurgical for brain ABMs. Um, is really the only randomized trial that's been recently published comparing those two modalities whether are the observation versus some form of treatment. And so when there's only one randomized trial in there, there's going to be the strengths and weaknesses of that trial. Moving below randomized trials would be perhaps several case series, single center case reports, and expert opinions. And that's unfortunately at the level that a lot of our evidence is at. And so I think that What we should try to strive for as a society and as a field is to mature the level of evidence that we have that support the procedures that we do, and show that we are providing improved patient outcomes. I think that will come in time, and I think that will come through a variety of mechanisms, including ways to organize and collect the data. For example, SNIS is going to be sponsoring a neurovascular quality initiative. And one of the first modules in that is acute ischemic stroke. And so we're hoping that all of the SNIS members and their institutions participate. And so that we can have a large database of data on patients that are treated with acute ischemic stroke. And perhaps that data can be mined. And while that might not have the same strength as a prospectively randomized trial, it would certainly be much broader than a single or two to three center retrospective trial. And it would really give us information on the state of the practice as it stands today. So I think, to summarize, I think we are in our infancy as a field, and it uh, would make sense since we've been sort of growing so quickly, but as we sort of enter adolescence as a field, I think it's important for us to uh, expand the level of the evidence-based medicine in our field.
0: Nash, that's just
2: a terrific answer, and I
0: love the fact that I can rejoin my, my adolescence uh, once again. So, uh, with that thought in mind. Always young,
2: let, gosh, always young.
0: <laughs> always young, indeed. Uh, maybe we could pivot a little bit. The variety of evidence and uh, different studies that we've had over time takes shape in the form of the clinical guidelines that the SNIS provides. Indeed, having Mahesh and Phil on the phone at the same time is really fortunate because there are no people that have done more to advance the clinical guidelines and technical standards of SNIS than my two co-participants. Phil, given your role establishing the committee, could I ask you to talk about the historic path of development of the neurointerventional interventional guidelines?
1: Uh, sure, Josh, happy to do that. So um, I, going back to uh, maybe 10 uh, years or so, Uh, it was recognized that we had a need to uh, better codify some of the uh, procedures we did in terms of both how we perform the procedures, but also how to describe them. And this was recognized as an early effort that would potentially lead to Uh, publications that we could then subject to comparative effectiveness uh, research. In other words, having studies with data points reported in similar enough ways that we could draw data across uh, various studies for purposes of uh, systematic uh, reviews. I think as many of us recognize when we look at single center studies, uh, small series and the like, reporting varies enough that it can make uh, the metrics of the study difficult to compare. Uh, among them. And so coming up with a common language, a common format would facilitate the ability to do comparative effectiveness research. Uh, Some of the past leadership, for instance, uh, uh, when Gary uh, Duckweiler from UCLA was the president, he had asked me to uh, put together, uh, or at least a group, uh, start the process of putting together a document to uh, describe endovascular aneurysm treatment. How do we describe aneurysm location? What are common terms? What are the shapes and size of the aneurysms? How do we uh, actually measure these on the imaging studies that we um, uh, perform and obtain? And then secondly, how do we measure the effects of the treatment, both uh, clinically and in terms of the imaging? So that was one of the early points at which I had uh, become involved in the process as a junior member of uh, the SNIS. And then I have to say, uh, in no small part under uh, your direction and stewardship over the years, That then translated into this role of uh, developing and redeveloping our standards and guidelines committee a set of standards had been put uh, together and published in American Journal of Neuroradiology I believe it was in uh, 2002 or thereabout and it was an early attempt to start to Uh, 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 categorize some of the procedures that we perform. And recognizing that 10 years had uh, uh, transpired, there was a need to update all of these. And so we began a process that now Mahesh has uh, uh, taken on uh, to update those and to better reflect modern practice. And from that, we've not only started uh, to complete the original set that needed updating, but we're recognizing new areas that need to be addressed, such as our use of antithrombotic medications for the types of endoluminal devices that we place in vessels. So there are going to be many more areas where uh, uh, intrepid minds, neurointerventionalists from all walks need to get together and start to develop a common language that'll allow us to collect the data that can then be translated into the earliest uh, comparative effectiveness studies as we move uh, forward.
0: Phil, it's such a brilliant point and many of us uh, can take it for granted because of the work that you and other pioneers have done that, in fact, one needed to establish a common language, a common reporting structure, just in order to be able to compare series to series, and and that, in fact, was a meaningful first step into developing the robust standard and guideline process that we have today. Mahesh, as the current head of the committee, I wonder if you could talk to us about the current state of the SNIS guidelines, what the committee structure is like, how the workflows, any ongoing projects, things you'd like to talk about with respect to the current functioning of the Standard and Guidelines Committee.
2: Sure, Josh. And I and I think it's very important that we acknowledge the work that Josh and Phil, especially Phil as the previous head of this committee, have done to get this effort started. Um, it's a lot of work to get it started and I will readily acknowledge it's uh probably a heck of a lot less work on my part to sort of keep the train moving than what uh, Phil had to do to really get it started. From the standpoint of the committee, what we're trying to do is we're trying to represent the membership of our society, and so we have members from uh, neuroradiology, from neurosurgery and neurology, which reflects the multidisciplinary nature of our society. We have members who are in academic practice as well as members who are in a private practice setting, again, reflecting sort of the nature of our field being practiced in both of those settings. We have senior members and we have more junior members. Obviously, the senior members are able to add perspective that some of the junior members may not have. And then the junior members bring, um, honestly, they bring a ton of enthusiasm and they um, really want to sort of move this forward. And so. Uh, As the president of the committee or the head of the committee, it's um, exciting for me because we have lots of people that want to uh, work very hard on a variety of documents. So just to give some of the flavor, we take a look at our core practice areas. And so I think for most neurointerventionalists, uh, endovascular aneurysm treatment, whether it be with traditional coiling or with endoluminal devices, and intraarterial therapy for stroke tend to take the bulk of our practice and so for those areas we are going to aim to have our uh, standards updated on a more frequent basis and for the remainder of the procedures that we do which are all very important, uh, we may space out the review of those um, areas. For example, some of the areas, uh, rather some of the topics that are in development right now include documents as Phil was saying that pertain to the role of antithrombotic agents, testing for antithrombotic agents in the era of endoluminal reconstruction, the current status of intracranial dural AV fistulas in terms of the standard of practice as well as reporting standards. Um, We're going to be updating our reporting standards for strokes. uh, And this is to reflect some of the evidence-based literature that's come out, for example, there has been several retrospective theories that have suggested that patients who are under general endotracheal anesthesia uh, when having mechanical thrombectomy performed tend to have worse outcomes. Again, this is a retrospective study. It's not prospective, and we don't know whether that is, would hold up in a prospective randomized trial, but we think that that is powerful enough of an effect that in future stroke reporting guidelines, we would suggest that the type of anesthesia that's used to be reported. The other example that I would give as to why these reporting standards are valuable and as what Phil had said, it allows us to compare these trials on equal footing. One of the trials that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine last year in stroke was the synthesis trial. Synthesis was a predominantly Italian trial that compared intravenous TPA alone versus intraarterial therapy with therapy sort of vaguely defined. One of the aspects of that trial that I found particularly troubling was the fact that the angiographic recanalization rate was not reported in the manuscript. And certainly our reporting standards would suggest that angiographic recanalization must be reported in any series looking at intraarterial therapy for stroke. And so that allows us to look at that trial and say this trial did not adequately meet our reporting standards and so we may think that this is something that was omitted from that trial and perhaps it would be helpful to have that. But I think that um, I consider myself very fortunate to have a group of very motivated, very, very smart, very knowledgeable uh, members on the committee who are all interested in moving the state of our field forward and helping out with adding to the level of evidence-based literature that's out there and really help us define the standards of our practice as well as reporting standards and really help shape how the field will be moving forward. Well, Mahesh, your leadership
0: in this effort has been tremendous and I think the committee is terrific and really doing remarkable work putting forward guidelines that are relevant to the clinical practice we enjoy from day to day. Well, this has been a terrific information-filled Podcast. I'm very appreciative of Mahesh and Phil spending this time with me today reviewing this article, Evidence-Based Clinical Practice for the Neurointerventionalist. I wonder if either of you has any concluding thoughts to our uh, podcast here.
1: Well, Josh, I guess as um, SNIS president, one of the things I might say is I'm, I'm approached from time to time by uh, members of our community saying, how can I get involved? What can I do uh, for SNIS? Uh, how can I become more involved in the society? And I think one of the best places is through the Standards and Guidelines Committee, as we've outlined in this discussion. And I think as both you and Mahesh have very clearly stated, there's there's a lot of work to be done. And the more minds uh, that we have uh, contributing thoughts and ideas, as well as doing some of the yeoman work of preparing documents, collecting uh, the data uh, is uh, – going to take a number of people. So for uh, many of our young uh, people involved in the community doing neurointervention, this would be a great opportunity to get involved in Society of Neurointerventional Surgery. It creates a number of publication opportunities uh, under Mahesh's direction uh, uh, running the Standards and Guidelines Committee, and these documents end up being published in um, the BMJ Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery. So I encourage all of our young members uh, to become involved in SNIS and uh, work through Standards and Guidelines Committee.
0: What a fantastic way to end this uh, podcast with those encouraging words for future investigators and leaders of the Neurointerventional Society. I think it's fair to say that evidence-based clinical practice is here to stay. It's something that the three participants on the call truly believe augurs well for our future we think there's tremendous opportunity in future trials that will be designed around the treatments we provide we look forward to assimilating uh, the information from those trials and uh, including them in future guidelines going forward thank you Mahesh thank you Phil and with that we'll conclude.